When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guests are Toby Meekins. Hello. Hi. And Simon Allen. Hello. Hello. You are director and writer of the new Netflix movie, Choose or Die, are you not? We are. Apparently, yeah. Do I, do I need to square that with anything? Is that, is that, it's a reference point that I've... I've <laughs> no, 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 we are, yeah, no. We are. So, we, no. We're still getting used to calling it Choose or Die. It was always called, it's been, since its inception, it's been called Cursor. Yes. And they changed, they changed the title of the film uh, deep in, deep at the end of post-production. So it's always... Which was... Which was yeah, that was their decision, and we we kind of, we, we appealed the other way. I don't think it's controversial to say that, but we we lost... The appeal, but we're very happy, you know, that it's out there and uh, people. Nobody seems to care what it what it might have been called before, so that's all right. You know what I mean? It did. It, I must admit, as someone that was aware of the project beforehand, it did throw me at first when I got the first email. With, me. Choose or die on the subject. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Am I, am I, I mean, it's an interesting marketing. It's an interesting marketing thing, actually. If you make a film for, if you make a film for it, for it, I don't think it's just Netflix. I think it's a streamer now. I mean, it, it is all kind of like access and algorithm based, and and also, you know, cursor. We we used to work cursor. Like we used to write with cursor, like like you see in the game, like you see in the film. And using that on Twitter is difficult. Using it on Insta is difficult. Oh yeah, no, no. I think there is. I mean, I think that you know the science of a cool, you know, film name has gone out the window because of the way the internet works. I mean, there's not a lot you can do about that. It's a real practicality. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my my argument to, to, to Netflix was, look, using the film's tagline as its title, what you're doing. And they're like, you know, tough. It was worse, it was worse for me because we, we, I mean, we're not criticising them. We're very, very grateful that they've, they've taken the film on as an original and that they're putting it out to, you know, what is it, 100 and, 
90 countries or something. It's incredible. Um, but we did, we, we, you know, we, we were very passionate about the title. It was always called that right through development. It was actually the first thing that we had. I, I, I came up with that, took it to Toby. He was like, well, what could this be? And we rolled it on from there. But we did get a day in court. They were very, very good to be fair to them. And they said, you can, you know, you, you can, you can, you can make your appeal, you know, come on. And there was this like mosaic of faces and, as Toby will affirm, I'm a pretty good pitcher. I love a pitch, right? So I spent like all afternoon like preparing this really cool pitch on why it should be called Cursor and not Choose or Die. And I thought I'll get a few laughs and I know where I'll, I'll get them to cry even in a couple of... And he worked, you know, they were lovely. They were reacting to it and everything. And then literally at the end of it, these just all these nodding heads and then like, well, yeah, but it's going to be called Choose or Die. <laughs> so, you know, it was... It didn't work. So, you know, and, and they have a logic to it, which obviously we have to respect because they run the platform and we don't. And, um, you know, and it, it has sort of what, I mean, you know, already the trailer is nearly at 2 million views, which is incredible for mm. something that's essentially an indie film. Um, and, and I guess the clarity of the title, the fact it has a bit of a proposition to it, you know. Um, well, and the word, has, has and the word die tells you you're getting into a horror film more or less before you even think about it, which I think is... It's crucial for getting the genre fans on board. Well, you just call every horror film die. Why not? Well, or death. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't wish to be. I don't wish to be that reductive, but, but you got you got me there, Simon. You got me there. Right then, before we get into too much detail, then, does one of you want to give a quick synopsis as to what Choose or Die is about, please? Simon, Simon pitches best. It's a retro 8-bit with attitude thriller uh, about a girl and a boy who unearth an ancient uh, text-based uh, tape-loading video game from the 80s and discover that it contains a reality-warping curse and it ends up presenting them with unthinkable, weird, surreal and horrifying choices and challenges that they have to survive. The curse is, is a staple of, of, of um, a supernatural horror film and and I think that you you do a brilliant job with with that challenge. But but before we get into before we get into that, I'd just be interested to know, because obviously you you two have collaborated on other things before. This this began life as a short film, if I'm understanding that right. Well it's, uh, it's um yeah you go you go. So um what happened is we made we made a short film for Fox uh in the States called Floor Nine and a Half that went out in the uh ad breaks of the, like, they put it on Fox Channel, and it went out in the ad breaks uh, on Fox and blew up in America. And it was Simon and I, we did that together. Fox approached us. They approached, Rob Savage made one here as well, and the Bloody Cuts Boys made one here. But they made 12 films, and they only picked four to be broadcast, and ours was one of the four. Okay. And it kind of blew up on Twitter. And Matt Wilkinson, uh, the producer that you know well, yeah. um, I approached him. He, he made that with us. And afterwards, it's like, look, you know, we work well together. We've got loads of great ideas. Let's put something together and take it out. And that's where it kind of that's where it came came from. from okay. Yeah. And it and it was pretty quick because we um as a we had a meeting in Pizza Express and um we've been looking. You know, was, was, was Prince Andrew there? there? Uh, Prince Andrew wasn't there on this occasion, but um, but he was. What was lovely about it was the the we learned so much from the sort of reaction to the short to floor nine and a half yeah. and from the type of storytelling hmm. and we were pretty convinced we were pretty ambitious about the idea of short form at that point you know of trying to move forward the medium of short form so we came up with i had the, the word cursor and the idea of a an eight-bit game and the idea that there was a curse in it and the play on words and all of that and that's hmm. all i had 
And I took it to Toby and Toby, as he often does when, when I start with something like that, he'll add the bit that makes it sing, right? And he was the one that said, well, you should, it should be, you know, an 8-bit game from the 80s and it should be menacing someone now, like somebody to whom the 80s doesn't mean anything. And, and from that, we got this idea of, okay, cool. So it's, it's, it's about that as well. It's about the idea that nostalgia in the 80s can be this sort of toxic supernatural force. Um, and it really unlocks something. And then in terms of what happened with the project, I mean, we, we, we did a sort of pitch document and Toby, because he's such a brilliant visual, uh, has such a brilliant visual imagination, put this deck together. Uh, and, and we had a bit of a bidding war, you know, from every sort of production, well, a lot of production companies in the UK wanting to do it. Mm. We went with um, a company called Anton, who was still, still on board. They were the financiers of the feature version. Uh, we got Ridley Scott attached to it as a, an executive producer. He said some very nice things in a press release about Floor Nine and a Half and about, about Cursor and what we wanted to do with it. Um, and we sold it. I mean, this is all very, very quick. We sold it to Quibi before Quibi really got oh. going to Jeffrey, Katzen, Jeffrey Katzenberg. So like, we went from making that short film uh, yeah. um, for Fox for, I think, Toby, you did it for like about eight grand or something, right? Oh, it was $25,000, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or something, to doing that to, to you know, Ridley Scott, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Quibi. Um, and we worked on it for quite a while, for about a year uh, on, on the episodes. It was about 14 episodes and there were very cool set pieces and things. And uh, and then of course could be uh, launched. I think should, just for for his, for his, for history for posterity's sake, we should say yeah. so. What's Quibi? So what's yeah. so, so a listener who's coming in who's not aware of Quibi because it kind of yeah, came yeah. and never it never it, it went before well, it ever came really. I mean, so Quibi, really, yeah, yeah, Quibi, Quibi were kind of the, it was the new Kool Aid, wasn't it? So I mean, we really loved the idea because we thought, okay, you know, like I mean, look at Love, Death, and Love, Sex, and Robots. From, Netflix, it's one of the best things on Netflix. And we thought that that's what Quibi was going to be. You know, the idea that you could take sh- you could take short form and really almost change the way that you make television and film now. Do you know what I mean? I mean, really they were, aim- and the, other, the unique thing was they were aiming for you. They literally were saying, you're going to watch this on your phone. That was their, the kind yeah, of USP, that, wasn't that, it? They weren't pretending it was anything else. And we'd worked out how to do this really brilliantly on phones as well. I really don't want to get into it because, but, but we worked out how to do this brilliantly on phones. And of course, I come from an advertising background, so I've been making content specifically for phones for, yeah, for yeah, a while. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know how to grade on a phone and, and you know the way that the light works best on a phone and stuff like that. And, you know, you know how you can interact with phones. So it was, it was really interesting. But what Quibi did was basically bought a load of feature films and, and, and chopped them up into into eight or ten episodes. That's what they did, and what they turned what they turned this into, what they turned Choose a Die into, or Cursor into, as it was then, was actually quite a flabby feature film. But then then we cut up into fourteen parts because they they applied all the same rules to to story. Except except that we did. Yeah, I agree with that. Except that we did manage to hang on to quite a lot of what excited everyone about it in the first place because yeah, yeah. if you if you watch toby's the, the shorts we made together and, and particularly floor nine and a half which i think is the best one yeah you know the efficiency of the storytelling is pretty pretty amazing like how much it gets through in under two minutes yeah and what working with toby is a half for so long you know we've got a very kind of good shorthand way of thinking about narrative and we've we really felt we were very passionate about the fact that we felt that with horror, um, so many horror films we find quite boring because they, they, the strategies they have for combining the supernatural and the kind of human story 
are always the same. You know, like there's always the, the, the girl that's being menaced by the ghost is always going to find the resolution around minute 79 and it's going to have something to do with her dad or something to do with her mom or, you know what I mean? You, you sort of know it's coming and it, and, it, and it means that everything in the story and the experience is reduced to a set of conventions, but also worse than that, to, to the idea that everything supernatural has to ultimately have a human motivation or a human agency. And, and for me, I mean, we, Toby and I talk about this constantly, the scariest things are the things that don't present themselves for the convenience of your comprehension, that they don't make sense. They don't compute, mm. you know, that, that cool thing in um, uh, Mulholland Drive, you know, the scene where he's in the diner at the beginning of the movie, yeah. he's talking about a dream he had and then the dream, you know, the, the, the logic of that, the dreamlike logic of it that seems to come from some other troubling, alarming place was what we wanted to tap into. And we felt that short form was a really good way of doing it because you're not a slave to those narrative patterns that everything gets folded into. Um, and that was what I think excited everyone about it. And you can still see vestiges of that in the film in the way the set pieces are constructed. You know, the film has five or six very, very clear set piece sequences. And I, and I defy anyone to find set pieces as inventive as that, particularly on this budget and with these resources in, in any other movie. You know, it's... Um, I think you can still see that kind of thinking of let's disrupt structures. Yeah, no, I mean, different. The, the, one let's of the films that the, 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 I won't, I'll try to avoid spoilers. I mean, you can spoil as much as you like, but I'll try, I'll try my best not to. Um, but if, but hopefully by what I suggest, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, I think that your, um, the laptop closing moment where we get to see two, we get to see another world as it were, is a, was a really inventive and efficient way. I mean, it was, it, it reminded me funny, I mean, it might sound like a crass comparison, but it reminded me of Jacob's Ladder, you know, the way that the real world and the supernatural world coexisted. It's really funny you say that. So I watched a bunch of films. I watched a bunch of films in the October. We, we, we started writing this in October 2020, and then we shot in March 21. Okay. So, and in October 2020, as a feature, we turned into a feature in October. Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. And that month, I watched a load of movies, and it was the last bunch of movies that I watched before I started making the film. And I didn't watch any movies while I was making the film either. Yeah. Because you, because you, you, but one of them was Jacob's Ladder. The first act of Jacob's Ladder was a big influence on how this film kind of, kind of worked. Not only, not only, but well, because because of the way I love the way that it presented New York. Um, you know, it's kind of a desolate broken, poor New York, and it's kind of like, I really want, I really wanted to tap into that. But also, I love the way that they used the supernatural in it. It was like, it's really interesting. And there's a there's a scene where the subway car's coming under, and there's just like a flicker and a ghost at the end of the company, or what he thinks is a ghost. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, that's, that's, where it, that's where he got the idea for the rat, because it was all like, this was a, you know, it was a good budget, but it was a constrained budget, and Toby was a lot of using um, Jacob's Ladder a lot as a, a reference for creating environments but what you just said there about the laptop moment's a good example of how we work together that the um the thing that one of the things i love about toby and the way his brain works and particularly compared to to other directors is you can give him like a concept that's essentially you know you can't execute it without like huge amounts of money and toby will find a way of doing it and you know if you go back to the short floor and a half the the original idea for that was the idea of being followed from the front right it was the idea of a girl walking along and there's somebody in front of her and she stops and they stop and she steps back and they step back, but they, they've still got their back to her. And then she turns and wherever she looks, they're always like staying distance in front of her. Right. Yeah. 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 And Toby was like, well, let's do that. in a let's do that in an office. And it, she needs to be in an office and there needs to be an elevator. And he adds, like, as he always does, makes it sing, makes these things work. And I remember saying to him, 
you know, uh, well, you know, how are you going to do the like the turning from the front thing? You know, you could because I imagine you'll build like some sort of disc, right? And the camera will be on it. And he went, no, no, I'll do it on the car. And I was like, no, that's going to be shit, mate. And he was like, no, 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 I'll do it on the car. And I'm like, no, 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 that's going to be shit. Lo and behold, he does it on the car. And you've seen the film. Mm. And anyone listening to this should watch the film because I think it's a really good example of this kind of thinking. And he does it on a car. And it's better than like, if you had all the money in the world and you could do the shot that I thought I could imagine that actually you probably could do, it's, it's better. And, and the laptop slam moment, which is again, you know, a cut and a clever piece of editing and all the performance mm. and everything is a really good example of, I think it's fair to say, Toby, we like, we like to do things physically, right? Tactically. And as, much as, you can, as much as you can in camera and then you kind of uh, help it out with the effects when you need to. That's what we like to do. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's always, it always gives the best results in my opinion. You, you really sort of eke out the provenance of your of your horror you don't you know there's no there's no you know i think i think you know looking at your production notes and kind of what you said already it's sort of you know i've seen enough horror films where where we get to some we get to the point we have to go to an expert who says oh this is because of you know the old ancient whatever it was and we have that scene We have a version of that scene, but it doesn't. It doesn't help. Into your opening half of the film, though, doesn't need. You already know enough. Oh yeah, you you're not using it. Yeah, just yeah. it isn't just the solving all the mysteries. What I mean is like you've already taught us through what you've seen what's going on, and the way that it resolves itself doesn't feel like that conversation was the solution because it was still down to. Um, Still down to Kayla to to work out what to do next. I mean, that's yeah. Toby all over, though. That's I mean, that's a good way of us working, isn't it, Toby? Because I'm with my I've done sort of you know a few years now, in, and I'm like used to it. I came to writing professionally quite relatively late. I was in my mid thirties when I started about uh, ten years ago, and Toby is always um, he's very good on it. You know, um, I will I will always try and put those scenes into things because of my TV background. It's sort of the stuff of television is to mm. explain, and Toby's always pushing back. And it's come full circle now because there's people I'm working with. Obviously, now we're making shows for like big platforms and so on, and they're more cinematic. And you're now getting the, you know, Toby would always say when we work together, that's a bit TV. And now people in TV are saying it's a bit TV. But yeah, so, so it's kind of weird. But they, 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 exactly as you say, and I think that, that fits in with what we were saying a few moments ago, you know, that, that we, we really do prefer supernatural experiences to be genuinely supernatural to not have human motivation to not be easily explained they're much scarier and that's much more like what a supernatural experience is you know an obvious an obvious reference for curse is obviously casting the rune mr james and i believe that the pair of you are very much influenced by mr james yeah no we're massive massive mr james fans in fact in fact we've had a we've had a short version of the the, the haunted doll's house like that we've wanted to do for like I don't know, 15 years now? It's, I mean, it, uh, you know. We're, we're David Morrissey attached to it for like, for a short, for a kind of short period of time. It was like as part of a scheme and, you know, they didn't get the horror film, the, the thing. So, and, it, and it's really influenced, it's really influenced this film. I mean, like the whole, the whole idea of using an 80s computer game is, is tied back to, is tied back to the, an, the antiquity of, of, of the cursed object in an M.R. James yeah. story. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you were a kid now, the 80s is as ancient as the 1870s are to, one, to when we were kids growing up in a funny kind of way. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's scary, isn't it? Like when, like, I think when I, like the, 
song two is 25 you know 25 years old now like that's 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 insane if you think of when i was growing up toby is it is more years now going back to when nevermind was released than it was to the 60s from when Nevermind was released. Oh, fuck off. Man, <laughs> I hate that. That's horrible. And, 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 so you, and so you look at you look at this stuff and you go, you know, in fact, I've been having an interesting conversation about it, about it on another project that I've got, you know, what, you know, when we talk about film or when we talk about kind of older characters, we always end up in this mindset that, that these people were like, grew up or were adults in the 70s. And of course they're not. If you've got like a kind of 50-year-old, Guy now who's your antagonist, you know, he would have grown up, he would have been a teenager in the in the in the eighties. Do you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and and at the moment, that's not changing film language, and it's going to have to start because because the kids watching it now, it it kind of means nothing. The amount of times, the amount of times I've said to to the runners or the production sisters, "Hey, have you seen Wivnell and I?" And they go, no. And I'm like, oh, go and see it. It's brilliant. And they come back that after the weekend and their precious time off and gone. Yeah, I watched that movie. It was fucking shit. You know <laughs> what I mean? Because just, the style, it's like, like, how can you say that? Do you know what I mean? It's genius, but it has no, has no relevance at all to them. Do you know? It really, it's the really... same. It's exactly the same with, um, you know, like, again, one of the, we were talking to Stuart about being a bit older coming into the industry and, Everyone I started working with ten years ago is it was in their twenties, you know, and um, and now they're in their thirties, and 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 there, I was bewildered by the fact that you know they didn't know what the movies were from that era, or didn't and didn't care, right? Because uh, mm. we think these things are touchstones, you know, the Goonies or Lost Boys or whatever. And for a lot of people, they are, but for an awful lot of people, they don't mean a fucking thing. And if you encourage them to to watch those films, you don't get that reaction because so much of it is embedded in whatever your relationship to that movie was in that era and that time. And they've got their own era, you know. And, so, and, and again, this, this ties into, really ties into what we were trying to do, what we were trying to do, curse or choose or die. The sacrilege, the sacrilege of the 80s, this, how nostalgia, how we treat nostalgia and how we treat the 80s, like it's this incredible place that all of this incredible stuff came from. And and, and one, was it really? And, 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 and it two, was. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Of course, it was <laughs> for, for us. But, but two, but two, it's like for, for, for you know, for a generation Z or Z or whatever you want to call it, like it means nothing. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, their grandparents had fun in the eighties, not not even their parents. Do you know, like, that's the world that we're living. But, but in you, now, I mean, you, you you do. I mean, it's it's wonderful part of the opening sort of five ten minutes. Once we meet when we meet Kayla that she is the voice of that generation you're talking about, which is, what are you talking about? And I thought, and and the crucial the crucial scene, and, and this, this is not story critical, it's just a lovely little gag, is where, where Isaac does his impression of Robert England as Freddy Krueger. He calls her a bitch, which obviously was a kind of catchphrase for Freddy Krueger. But obviously in 2022, you call anybody, least of all your peers and female peers at that as a bloke, a bitch, you're asking for trouble. Uh, so here you go, Stuart, as a fellow writer. And Toby, actually, to be fair, didn't. this isn't Toby's fault. But um, the bitch thing, yeah, you're right. It's um, the actual, where I got that from was that um, my daughter loves Rick and Morty, right? Yeah. And Rick and Morty have got this fantastic piss take of Freddy Krueger called Scary Terry. Okay. So you should watch it. It's hilarious. And it's like, one, two, Scary Terry's coming for you. 
and basically Rick and Morty are evading this kind of total um, uh, Freddy Krueger ripoff who has like forks for hands or something, and they make a joke about about that. And so it can't be, you know, can't breach copyright. And he comes after them, but he says bitch, bitch a lot. He's always like, you can run, but you can't have bitch. And prime time, and all this stuff. And and at one point, uh, Rick says, "God, he sure does like to say bitch a lot, doesn't he?" And that's what the reference was to that. It's the Isaac character is sort of doing that kind of approximated version of it. And then at the end, we um, at the end of that scene, scene as it is in the movie, originally he does do the really nice line where he says, um, "You know that, you know where that reference comes from." Yeah, 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 yeah. Bitch. Um, but then I think at one point after she walked out, it was and Toby shot it, and it was really good. Asa did it really well. He said, "He said, help yourself, bitch," and he did it in a funny voice. And it was funny that the younger execs at Netflix. Number one, I don't think a lot of them understood the reference, right? So, so they okay. did just think he was calling her a bitch and putting on a funny voice. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, okay. Se- yeah, yeah. And the se- and the second bitch, the second one, and the compromise that Toby got w- was to take the second bitch out. You know, the second time it happened. And, yeah. You know, but it's but it's a really interesting. It'd be really interesting to see what people make of that moment and whether they do get it or, wh- or whether that is a a Generation X joke. You know, only. Do you know what I mean? Without knowing that, but seeing it as it is in the cup and knowing the reference, it worked both ways for me. Because obviously it's Isaac, the guy who can't get the girl. Ultimately, the payoff is, is there anything you like about me kind of thing, like all all the time with him. So you feel that he's fought, as much as he might have offended her in in any way, he's just failing to pull her, as it were. And that's all that's happening. It's just another way that he's failed. And I thought it was just a... Just a nice. It was a nice way because I think it's a really, I think it's really rich territory um, when you're doing these kind of things to to have references and play on people getting them or not getting them, mm. and then try and think about whether the audience get them or not get them. You know, because sometimes something that clearly isn't an insult or offensive could be misread as such, and then you could be aware of that or not aware of that, and so on. So I'm really, really glad that landed with you, and mm. um, you know, and I think again, Toby. I mean, you could talk about it with Aza. I don't know what Aza actually did. Aza get it. Toby, when you shot yeah, it. Yeah, no, well, he likes, he's, he's a, yeah, he, he got it completely inched. And, you know, Yoda was really, was really cool about it as well, actually. But of course, the thing about, about their relationship and the thing about, about the Kayla Isaac relationship is, is, is that, uh, he, he almost is a throwback because he's such a retro geek himself. He's almost, he's almost like a throwback to the 80s himself. And she is so thoroughly, in my mind anyway, in the way that we try to play it, so thoroughly kind of now. They're very kind of modern, and I, hopefully that kind of comes across. You know, I wrote in my note, in my notes. I just I said that there's a real edge to the relationship because of Kayla, because you can see that there's not a natural. She doesn't need his approval, which is obviously a progression from where we've been before. You know, even as recent as twenty years ago, that wouldn't have been obvious thing to try and make. You know, it would have been about her, her getting his approval in some way, shape, or form, despite whatever the horror would have been. The scene at the beginning of the diner with the waitress, you know, there's a flirtation, there's a deliberate flirtation that happens between her and the um, her and the waitress. Mm. And, and, you know, people of our, of our generation may, might not get it so much, but a 25-year-old female watches that Boom! Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because yeah, she oh, says she, she said, "I don't, I don't mind if you stay, if you want to stay around, but my boss is going to go bananas." So clearly, they were kind of hanging, as it were. But yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like there, there is a, there, there's a connection between the, there's a connection between the two of them. And in fact, in fact, uh, Joanna, who was cast as the part, she brought that into she that wasn't written that she, it wasn't written to be played like that. She. Her, her casting tape, she pulled that. Can I just rewind a sec? Because we've t- we've talked to, we've talked in big in big strokes about about what you 
what you did to pull the film together. But I'd be interested to know from a collaboration point of view about nailing the provenance of of your supernatural because it, it it was the thing that got me. It was such a I mean, especially where we don't want to spoil it by going and where it ends, but from beginning to end, the concept just holds together beautifully and grows in a really natural way. The way you feed is information. But in terms of that beginning step where you're going, how do we do this? this kind of our supernatural world? Because you're at pains to point it out in your production notes that you didn't want to go down certain roads. So what was the challenge for you two as collaborators in terms of designing that provenance that was using the old technology, but but but, but bringing it into ancient thing, which is the unknown supernatural? I think it was with, uh, and Toby did a lot of thinking on this, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, and Toby actually wrote an episode uh, when it was a TV show that was that, that explained the, the curse, right? Yeah. And where the curse came from. Um, and we and Toby was really really good on this uh, very early on because we where we we always find we have to work everything out like even on floor nine and a half we have to we have to have like hours and hours and days and days of conversation about the mythology and and and, and even if you don't see all of that you know because the the film or the story you're telling is a, a keyhole on that yeah uh, and with this we did, we had to do that as well you know we we, we had to work it out yeah. work it out work out where it started before the curse was put into the game by the guy you know? yeah yeah no that's just and, what I'm um, thinking yeah. And we worked all that out. We know what that is. It's all written down. There's a really, really good episode that actually would be a, a prequel, I guess, or whatever, um, that we could do something with at some later point. And then we, and then it's all about like, when how little of that do we need to give you? Because again, when you think about it, when you think about Jaws or Alien or, or anything that's, that was properly scary in the kind of analog world that I think we're talking about, those movies from that era, you didn't know a fucking thing about the supernatural threat. You didn't know a thing about like The Shining, which I still considered to be one of the scariest things ever when you I see agree. it when you're 14 or 14 on a black and white tv and you know uh, two in the morning which is i think the perfect way to see that movie by the way you know fuck all about it you don't know what the hell it's got to do with anything which, i'm which, sure they which makes it even more scary right yeah say yeah I mean. but you were you were really good toby because you were i tried to because i think by this point um because I, I should say that toby was the driving force behind seeing this as a film, right? Toby was the one that was like, okay, the Quibi thing's dead, but this could be a feature and I'll show you how. And he was the one that took the episodes and put them together and sent them to me. Uh, and like, look, it almost works. You just need to do a bit of this, that, and the other, you know, okay. uh, which was amazing. But it was it was Toby, you know, the lazy writer in me who's kind of got, you know, other projects or whatever, was like, okay, we'll do Peter. And he's like, no, we need to know. Like, we need to work all this out forensically. The audience doesn't need to know, but we have to know. So we know what we're not doing, right? We know when we don't do something or we don't explain something, there's a confidence to it. Mm. Um, but, but so I think that's the point. We, 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 there was a lot of work, a lot of writing, a lot of documents, a lot of episodes of when it was a show and a lot of scenes as well that were paired away, but kept so that Toby, when he was telling the story on the floor, you know, in a really difficult circumstances, COVID and everything, if there was a question from the floor, if there was a question from one of the actors, he could answer it. He, he knew he knew what it was, and you, I think that you need to have that kind of confidence to say as well. Do you yeah, know what I mean? especially with the level of quality of cast we had on it, you can't they instantly know whether you're bullshitting or not. Do you know what I mean? It's like you have to you have to be sure of what you're what you're asking people to do, and it becomes really important, especially in something where where because these some of these set pieces are kind of quite tricky to shoot. Yeah. You know, you were asking them to stretch themselves, and you know they've got to understand that you understand exactly exactly what what you're what you're doing. It's really it's a fascinating thing, actually. The hardest the hardest thing in terms of the writing process of that though was deciding when we could start to move the game away from the screen 
and how often we had to bring it back to a screen and how we could take it out into the real world. Okay. I mean, that that was my thing, because, again, the, the, the first pitch, I was like, you want to make 8-bit text, like a supernatural presence. You know, you want to make that our jaws, that... And so the original scripts were full of it, you know, and I was particularly keen on on doing something with transcript, you know, moving from sort of text to action and back again and seeing that kind of strange transcription process occurring okay. and then being reversed. Um, and I found it quite a good way of representing it on the page. You know, I, I used a different font and I would have a sort of baton pass between written text on the page and then dialogue and then scene direction action that was quite a done. I think, again, that helped sell the project because it read, really dynamically and it really involved you in in the events on the page but as toby said and this comes from hard-earned experience because he's made so much cool stuff and you know stuff that's had to communicate really quickly it it will get really fucking boring people looking at screens and i always remember thinking oh fuck off mate you know like what do you (laughs) kind of like you know like oh they leave it in there it's really good and then actually like the number of times on in tv shows where i've realized that i've worked on a couple of spy shows and People looking at screens gets really fucking boring really quickly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. when you watch the ball, are, the ball movies, the cameras all over the place. But, you know, it's so but there are there are there are kind of there, there are kind of exceptions there, and you do learn so. So there's a scene in the film when Asa first starts kind of playing the game, and um, it's in the trailer, so it's not giving it away. And as he speaks, the game types out what he's saying. It just even before he says them. Yeah. Now on the on the page, I was like, this is. This is never going to work, you know. And we shot it, and it's like this is. I was like, when before I was shooting it, it was like this is never going to work. It's going to be, you know, crap. Quite frankly, I think you, I think <laughs> you said I'll have I'll have going. Oh yeah, I said, but but, but, but Asa was so good. <laughs> Asa was so good, and and it's you know that's what bringing talent to it does. Asa took it, and and the wonder of what was happening. He he really portrayed that beautifully, you know, in my opinion. And and it, and right. it made it, it made it made something it's really difficult thing to do. Do you know what I mean? Because essentially what you're doing is saying words and I'm shooting somebody and I'm shooting them coming up on the screen. And to give that a little bit of like well, the magic that he gave it, I just, you know, in the edit, all the way through the edits, like my one of my favorite bits of the film, because it's like it's something that's so simple and and all that's making it work really. It's good acting, to be honest, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's, um, and again, but the, uh, you know, this is going to turn into a parade of compliments for, uh, Toby, but it, it's that oh, thing. Of, 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 yeah, 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 he loves it. Uh, no, no, it's that thing of, 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 of being given a really difficult to execute idea that, that, you know, and then finding a way of doing it that's really elegant and simple. And in the end, there, the baton pass from, uh, you know, screen to somebody's voice, basically. And, mm. and, and because that, uh, you, you directed him and he found that tone and everything, you get this really complex idea that, that you know, this thing is somehow in tune with him, in, in, with him and can manipulate things. And you're, you, it's scary and you don't really know what it's doing. The tectonics is shifting. And you get the whole thing from just the tone of his voice. It's amazing. So, Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, another, there's another sort of actor versus screen moment, which I thought was really effective and I guess would have helped with the production budget as well, which is when when um when Kayla's got the the rat and her mother's sequence, you know, it's well you'd think it'd help with the production budget, but it's actually one of the most expensive things in the film. Go away you're joking, Toby, <laughs> really? No, 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 like seriously, lighting so it's a big empty space. Okay. And and and, and lighting lighting Big empty spaces and making the work. So and it's a night. Sh- and it's two night, 
two night shoot days. Right. So, uh, like, it was, it was, it was, it, you know, it wasn't the most expensive thing in the film, but it was really interesting. Actually, they they tried to get me because of budget. They tried to get me to change that location a couple of times, so, and I dug my heel. I dug my heels in because the one thing that we did, the one thing that we've done with all the shorts, is find a great location and make stuff work within it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's what we did. And it was the deal with this. It's like, Simon's got a lot of showrunning experience. He knows how to structure his story. We trust him with that. I'm good with set pieces. But to make these set pieces work, I need this, 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 and this. And one of those was great locations. And, and that location was expensive. Lighting it in there was expensive. Shooting, like just the whole thing, shooting was expensive, extraordinarily tiring. I mean, the crew, the crew went on over. The crew, it was an overtime job because it was, it was nights, nice, wasn't extra, it wasn't like double bubble because it was nice or anything like that. But you know, I think we went, we went over. So, so yeah, in theory, it was, it was, it was cheap, but no, not at all. And of course, the technology, you'd think that, you'd think that it's, it's, we had a really great kid on the shoot called Ted, who basically designed all the game, he shot everything live, right? So, like hardly any of those. I think we ended up comping quite a lot of the screens back in, but everything there was for the actors to react to. Oh, really? So it was all done live. Yeah, and just the cost of that, the cost of running that. So, so Ted was there playing the, the bits of the game that, that that Yola had to react to as the game was as the game was playing out in front of her. And um, Angela, Angela Griffin, to her credit, was in a. We had to build a soundproof wall inside the the corridor of this this kind of office building, mm-hmm. so that she could scream and it could come through an earpiece. Hey, y'all! Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me what inspires your music, and one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So she was earpieced at the same time. It was an incredibly complicated, like, I know it looks really simple and really effective, but it was actually a really incredibly complicated No, no, I'm, I'm grateful for your, for your unpacking it. Because, I, I mean, obviously, I didn't use the word cheap. I just meant cost less. <laughs> no, no. So, 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 no, I mean, the cheap, like, the, 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 the cheaper, the cheaper scenes in the, film i guess were the were actually the set the sets that we built okay. but once you've got set and you've got a week in there you're kind of all right you know what i mean the racking level is um I, I agree i think it's one of the most effective sequences in the in the film and it was the the model for that initially at least was was the um scene alien um sigourney weaver and the team they're in the console room and dallas is out in the corridor and then all you really see of dallas's fate is this sort of pulse yeah. on like a, a motion sensor mm-hmm. and it's so analog and old school you don't even see him get you know eaten by the alien or anything and it's it, it's all about what you don't see and what your brain fills in and we thought that we could 
take that further and do something with 8-bit graphics, with representing something that's absolutely unimaginable, you know, like a fucking monster rat or a rat king coming after this woman in her apartment. You don't see any of it. You just hear it and you see a kind of graphic representation of it. But I just wanted to come in on something because I know you, um, Stuart, you talk a lot about um, process. One thing that Toby, and Toby will have a lot to say about this, one thing that, that I found incredibly useful with um, my writing that Toby taught me actually um, was that when we when we when we made the first short film that we'll probably admit to right, which was about twenty five years ago, twenty two years ago, uh, called The Magic Mile, yeah. and, we, and Toby shot it on Super sixteen mil uh, in Canva. We we had this idea about um, it's just literally what it says on the tin. It's a, it's a, a mile where miracles happen right on, on this remote beach down in the south of England. And uh, but the miracles don't last beyond the extent of this mile, right? Okay. And so, and it sounds, it sounds again, it's a bit like cursor. You know, it's an idea that came from the title. You're sensing a pattern here with me. And um, again, Toby's first thing is like, well, how am I going to show that? How are we going to do this? And I'll never forget. He found this location. He said, you, "You come down here. Come down here. We'll look at it." And we walked a mile on this location and found these groins. You know, those sort of fence-like structures that yeah, jut yeah, out yeah, into yeah, the yeah, ocean. Yeah, yeah. And it, so we organized the story and the sequences in the story around when the character that we follow reaches those groins so that we could clearly show you when this miracle starts happening to her, a midpoint and when it ends, right? When it, when it, when it abandons her. And I've never ever forgotten that. And I've always used the, the, the physicality of going to a location, going to a place, whether, whether you're lucky enough to be on something that's greenlit and you can, go to, you can do recce's and you can walk around with a director and you can plan and plot around spaces and what how characters will interact with real geography, or whether you just do it off your own back if you're working speculatively or in development or whatever. You know, it really does help because it just it gives your writing a precision. And particularly if you're trying to build drama, suspense, those things are all about geography to some degree. You yeah, know, they're yeah. all about uh, where someone hides, how far it is to here. That old adage of it takes a long time to walk across the room, it's true. I read so many scripts, get sent so many scripts for, to work on shows and stuff, and it really does take a fucking long time to walk across the room, right? It's like there's so many boring, like you've not thought about where this is, what they're doing there, and Toby is an absolute master yeah. at, at, at constructing story around real spaces, I, I think. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? To, like, that's the last compliment now, right? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to call myself a master. It's just, I think it... It came from it's 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 a it's a craft thing. I I did a lot of work abroad when you turn up to a location abroad, DOP, and you're given a foreign crew, and you've got to make a commercial with a foreign crew in the space they've given you, and you fly in, you wreck it, and you shoot the next day, and then you go into you go into another country, and yeah. by doing that, you learn you learn a craft. You know, you start to look at it, and you start to look at spaces, and you start to think, how do these how can these spaces how do we? How do these spaces get? You, how can we use these spaces in the right way to get the most drama out of it? And it's just you just take those you take those rules. I take I, all the rules that I learned from doing that, and all the experience I learned from doing that for 10, 10 years. I I brought into this, and it's, it's that simple, really. It's surprisingly not common in the industry. Like you know, that writers think like that, and um, it does change it. Like I I I I did a sh- I'm a showrunner on. Um, a season of the musketeers a show for the bbc and they'd already got this beautiful set built uh and they looked at me like i was fucking insane because i got out there and i was literally acting out the action set pieces in the set and going it'll be here and then this horse comes out of here and this guy jumps out here they're like what the fuck is this guy doing you know and that's toby's fault uh, so, <laughs> well, except that story makes it always makes it more complicated than it needs to be because oh, yeah, it's all, whatever. Uh, here we go. and they can say these five lines there. 
yeah, yeah. No, let's just cut the lines. Just yeah. to stab up. That's true. <laughs> you have a choice between a red door and a blue door at some point in the film. And uh, I, I just wonder, I'm just wondering how much how much of that was a sort of nod to and Mickey take of the red pill, blue pill element, given obviously the computer notion that hangs over this and obviously the, the idea of real worlds and virtual worlds that, that exist in your film. I mean, for me, I don't think I was that. I don't think I was that plugged plugged into it. For me, I thought I think I thought I was being more more Lynchian and kind of really. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but maybe that was just the state of my mind at the time. Do you know? I don't, I, I, don't I, know. I always remember with that one. It came from we had when it again so it's about <laughs> that, but it's a you talk about story and process so. You know, it was it was a TV show before and um, a short form TV show, and there was a level game, one that Toby had come up with that was a game based around a location. It was based around a nightclub, yeah. Um, and we made made a thing in the nightclub of red light and blue light, and it was really cool. We used music in a really creative way. I think that would have been quite a groundbreaking sequence, actually. And and uh, you've got like a list of tracks, didn't you? Like eighties tracks, and and bad things happened. You had to choose between different eighties tracks and. Um, we would have the whole budget for the entire film. Yeah, it would have fucked us completely. But um, <laughs> but so I think it was a, a the red the red door blue door was a hangover from that. But it was a um, it was a chance to get a bit of levity into the story. You know, to have that lovely bit with Asa where he says, uh, you know, never pick red. And then of course there's something horrible behind the blue door. It's like red's not so bad. Red's cool. You know, like red's okay. Um, you know, that was quite a nice moment. So yeah, it was. And I think it was more David Lynch in terms of. You know the weird things appearing behind the radiator all of a sudden, and all of that—just these two doors appearing. Mm. Oh shit! You know. Um, so yeah. No, I mean, look, it was it, it, it all—it all felt like very much like a continuum because obviously, with the again, how effective the laptop closing bit does in terms of what's possible, you know, without needing to explain it. I just thought, you know everything was possible from that point on because yeah, Layla's clearly not in control of what's going on in her life anymore, apart from the choosing. Or dying. That's it. You know that that is hardwired into yeah. her her moving forward, which is you know, which which is wonderful. And, it, and you gave me a segue there, so I'm going to use it because you mentioned the word music, and oh wow, uh, and obviously, uh, but but in comparison, and thinking of a, a film that really did utilize eighties music, um, Adam Wingard's The Guest. You know, and he got in a whole host. They they spent a lot of money, obviously, getting like Front Two Four Two and Love and Rockets and whatever. But you kind of. It's like, a, it's like you get you get the best of both worlds. You've got you've got Liam Howlett from the Prodigy doing you doing the score, who is of the time when the game is from, but also has a career that straddles to this to this day. What's the process there in terms of when you've got your because obviously you're you've gone through this this period you've gone through this development, which is this Quibi TV series, to then squeezing it into what you saw as the film. So then when you when you've got the film. At what point is he making the score? Is this after the film's all oh, done? So, so, so this is how it worked, right? So uh, the music super came on, and like I think it was in December, and, and I was and we were talking about music, and I was like, look, I fancy. But so so with everything with this, the first impulse that everybody said, whether it was design, costume, hair, was like, oh, so is it all going to be set in the eighties? And I'm like, like, are we going to tap into that constantly? And I'm like. Absolutely not. The eighties is the antagonist. You know, what I mean, nostalgia is, is is what we're fighting against here. So this is set now, and then when bad shit happens, that's when we can reference how the, how how the kind of eighties feels. So we were talking about bands and maybe getting like a, a kind of a 
uh, they'd sent me a bunch of bands that wanted to start getting into soundtracks. And he said, look, on the off chance, I know Liam's looking to do a, looking to do a score. Like, should we talk to, should we talk to Liam? And I was like, well, fuck, I, I, if Liam wants to talk to us, then <laughs> for Liam, we had, I think it was in December, we had a, we had a, we had a Zoom, me and the music supervisor, his manager and the producer. And I had a really, I spent a lot of time doing the deck for this. The, the, the deck, months of work went into the deck and I think it's one of the reasons why the film happened in a funny kind of way. I'll send it to you. It's, it's like, I know what well, I've been told by everybody in the business that it's really kind of good pitch deck, mm. like good director's lookbook. And um, I sent him that and, and he was like, yeah, I'm really up for this. Um, you know, like give me, give me a bit of time and, and, I, and I'll send you some, I'll send you some stuff just to see if, <laughs> if you like it or not. And I never remember, I thought we all hung up and we were like, oh, that was great. You know, Liam's never going to do this. Do you know what I mean? So like, like, I remember, you've got to remember at that time, it's a low budget English indie movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We're asking like, you know, the, 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 like, yeah, it's like, why would he do? What? Yeah, no, you're, asking, nobody attacked. you're asking a big rock star to do it, yeah. Yeah, you're asking a, you're asking a legend to, 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 do, to do that, right? Like, nobody attached him. Literally, I think we were about, Christmas came and went and we were going into pre-production in January and I hadn't heard anything. And then just out of the blue, Liam Howler sent me like four tracks. Like four tracks turned up in my own voice and it's like, literally, what do you think of this? And I sat there for like 25 minutes and there's all this stuff going on, you know, you're on pre-production on a movie, it's like fucking mental. And all this stuff's going on and I'm like, oh my God, like I couldn't open them because I'm like, if I don't like it, it's basically, I could have to say, I don't want to use Liam, Liam Howlett, you know what I mean? Yeah, which, is, <laughs> which is just insane, you know? And, and what he sent was basically four, uh, no, it's about seven, but it was like, I think it was four and there were variations. It was basically four soundscapes. That's what he sent. He sent us over four really cool, dark kind of drone, well, drone is the wrong term, because it was base, base soundscapes. And they were just extraordinary. And it was like, wow. You know, like, how can you have distortion? It's almost clean. It's like, it's, 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 like it, it blew my mind actually and so from that point what he did became part of the dna of the film because i used them on set you know uh-huh. like I, I i used i used that i played that stuff on set when we were doing things and then when we got into what happened then was we got into um we got into post and we started needing stuff and it's like look, i don't want to take this off the internet and liam was like look i'm ready to start working Just, liam started started basically scoring the film at like week five week five of post basically which was which was great and at first what it was a really I mean it was the biggest joy of making the film for me at first what it was was it sent some stuff go oh how about this what do you think about this where do you like this maybe this will work here and then we'd put it somewhere else and send it back to him and go but we think it works here but if you don't like it here we can talk about it and then he'd change it up and so at first it was very organic because he was, it's his first score and it's my first movie. So we're almost like learning together. Oh, wow. And then by the end, yeah, no, it's fantastic. And we, 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 once I, you know, the thing is, is that nothing of his is, I mean, it's sampled obviously, but nothing's computer. Like he doesn't take a, a like a, a fixed computer sample. Like he'll, he'll play a kick drum and then he'll sample that. He'll do it live and then he'll sample that. Everything is, is, is kind of organically created. You know what I mean? The and made, right? And made yeah. the amount of work that's gone into it. It's just incredible, really. But what happened is, is we were going along, further along, further along the journey, 
he began to be able to express himself more in the way that he was trying to express himself because because he was found his found his feet and also it got to the stage where you know you get into the end of scoring the film and it's like you know you're playing with frames mm. do you know what I mean you're playing I need this to hit here I need this to hit here I need that to hit there and it was and, and it just kind of happened it was it was it was it was brilliant up until the very I just remember when Toby sent me the title track and he knows, because, uh, you know, we did talk a lot about the score before he got Liam, which was, I couldn't believe it when he got Liam. I mean, the first thing when he got Liam, I I, I just wanted to, I wanted, I tried to get Toby to do the thing from Poison, you know, the, the, the beginning of Poison, that track where you hear the phone ring and Liam Howlett goes, fuck's sake, trying to write this fucking tune, man. I was like, say that to him, say that to him. But he still hasn't done it. Um, but it, no, I, I just the, the you know the sort of eightiesness of the track, the sound. And this is a game where Toby has incredible. Oh, another compliment. Look at that. Where he has incredible instincts. You know, my instinct was always, oh, it's going to be a real kind of synthwave throwback uh, score. And in fact, what you did was something much more interesting that had sort of notes of that, but it was still quite contemporary. And you sent, I never forget, you sent the title track, which is on the you know the opening credits, and it's so gnarly and analog and brutal and evocative and, and i just heard it and i listened to it about 50 times over and over i couldn't believe it i love it so much and um it's the kind of music that i would listen to so wonderful it's really interesting it really tapped in so so we had some very good sound designers come on in the first place um and like i had to change them quite late on in the process basically because i had because because Liam's sound is so organic feeling. I know it probably doesn't feel it when you listen to it because it's essentially electronic, isn't it? It's like, you know. But this, obviously we created the game sound and the game sounds, it just was, it wasn't fitting with what Liam had done. And so I got this guy called Steve Brower came on kind of really late in the game, really late in the day. And he's, he's like an analyzed, brilliant sound designer and, and an analog geek and, he kind of understood. He understood the project, and like immediately. Don't get me wrong; these other guys, they they were doing the top draw sound designers, but it was like Steve just tapped into what Liam had done mm. and kind of and kind of complimented it in a really like he just understood. You know, it's just one of those things. It's just like this guy understands what Liam's done, and, and therefore we can compliment it in the right way. And that was that was. I mean, that was a rough run to the end there, like getting the sound that done because we were. Like what he turned around in days at the end of the process, Steve the Samsoner was was incredible. But it does make it it uh, hopefully it gives the game a real voice, and hopefully it makes the whole thing feel like it belongs in the same world. You know what I mean? That was very kind of yeah. And I really think you know important. that's always that's always an important part of a, of a, if a score has to be sort of be a character alongside everything else. It's sort of it has to have it's got that role, hasn't well, it? If it's, if it's doing its job, I mean sonically. Basically, he, Liam laid the groundwork for the whole film. A lot of a lot of the sound design in there is basically is stuff that Liam created that we took that we that we just say, "Can we make that, Liam? Please, can we use that?" You know what I mean? The actual yeah, the sound design work on the actual film, as it turned out in the end, was mostly giving the game giving the game a voice, which is kind of fascinating, fascinating in itself. Actually, that was a, that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun. And of course, that's the other thing, like designing the game, that was done three years ago as well, you know, that's the same person who did the original artwork for the game, came on and worked all the way through and delivered delivered the graphics for the game over the course of three years, which was great. Given given circumstances have changed over the last couple of years due to a pandemic and also you making a film that ended up being released on a streamer, can you talk about that process of uh, 
of discovering how your film is received, as it were. So, I mean, the, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating and scary and nerve wracking all at the same time. So, Netflix, we we made the movie. The movie was made independently. It was deficit financed and made independently. And then I think we got to the stage of the director's cut, which was about ten weeks in. And a trailer, it was a it was a trailer, and the script was sent out at Cannes, mm. and it sold from the trailer and script. Yeah, which is, which is incredible in itself. Indeed. And then so, oh, whatever. Oh. I've got to, I've got to put this on the record for posterity. He phoned me. Um, I was at a, a, an air show, right? Like what a dad thing to do, right? It was a fucking air, which I hated. I hated it. And I was watching a Spitfire go over, and he phones me. But Netflix had just bought the film, and I'm like, oh yeah, right. And he goes, no, 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 Netflix had just bought the film. And he did also tell me how much, which literally I was, st- <laughs> which he can't talk about. But I was like, okay, I'm gonna go get some beers now. And it was, it was unbelievable. It was just an unbelievable thing. Yeah. Sorry, Tobe. Go on. But all of a sudden, what you're doing is 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 so you so I come from a commercial background, so the budgets that I'd be working with were, were better than the budgets that I made the movie for, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, like per minute, you know, a lot better. And the crews that I was working with, don't get me wrong, my crew was lovely and beautiful, and my HODs are men is, but a lot of the crew were were a lot more inexperienced than the crew, crews that I'm used to working with. So you kind of like change your whole way of thinking about stuff. Making a, making a movie a little bit because you're making an independent movie for less money. And then Netflix buy it and come on and they they want, quite rightly, to um, to have a say in, in, in the movie. You know, they, they, they bought the movie, they're execs, and they don't even want to be, like, really, I can't stress how good they've been throughout, but they, they had notes, right? And all of a sudden, there's a, and also it's a Netflix movie. So there's an expectation in terms of VFX, in terms of grade, in terms of sound, you know, like you're not making a film for the festival circuit anymore that you're hoping to, you know, yeah, you're yeah, making a net. I understand, yeah. So, so again, you have to switch your perspective and, and go, okay, so we, we've got to do this in a, in a different, in a slightly different way now. It's got to run in a slightly different way, um, which was, which was, you know, a process that, that we found difficult our end because obviously the budget hadn't changed. We were still making an independent, we were making an independent film for, for Netflix, but the budget hadn't gone up just because they bought it. That's not the way it's, that's not the way But it's, it was, it's true that they, and, and you're right, you know, you would expect them, particularly for what they, they, they pay for the movie and their ambitions for it, which are considerable, you know, they, they, they wanted to influence it as much as possible. And, and, and what often happens, and Stuart, you'll know this, and, and listeners that are, you know, either starting out as screenwriters or whatever, you often get in a situation like that, you get things that sometimes are more like script notes than cut notes. Um, and, okay. you know, so we, we, we felt, you know, that because they want to influence it so much as if it's as if it's just started. But in fact, Toby had made it and there'd been this director's cut. And, and you know, it, it kind of to an extent fundamentally is what it is, right? There's, unless you're going to reshoot, there's not much you can do. Um, and so a lot of the things we, we, suggestions we were getting, apart from specifics about cuts were, ADR, you know, like, uh, and you were talking earlier about the mythology and so on, and, and how much you explain and how much you don't don't explain. Um, and there were a lot of suggestions for ADR lines, and, and we wrote quite a lot of ADR lines, didn't we? We did. Toby? We recorded end, a lot of ADR. Yeah. We recorded like loads of them, and in the end, you you know, and you tried to your credit, you tried a lot of them, and you, uh, poor old Ace of Butterfield. I think I wrote one speech for him. You can see it in the film where, like, to, to him trying to get through about two minutes worth of dialogue in forty-five seconds. It's always a fun thing to watch, right? 
Um, but in the end, you ended up taking most of it away, I think. That's fair to say, no, using but, probably about... But, but you know, so listen, it's, it's, it's kind of like, and again, you learn this, this experience. It's not, you know, you learn this working, you learn this working for, for clients in like in a professional industry. It's like the, the point, the point is, is that nothing's wasted. You know, you go in and you try it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But provided that you can show that it doesn't work or that you've tried it to your best ability, then, then people are generally pretty good in their lesson. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that's, that's, that's kind of what happened. But it made, the process, it made the process longer and it made the process more expensive, which is, which is you know, interesting in itself. But anyway, so we get the movie finished just after Christmas and we're hoping for it to go south by southwest. We wanted to go south by southwest. Because um, originally we were we were heading to, just before Netflix bought it we were we were heading towards TIFF. Do you know what I mean? That was that was that was the the thing that we were going for. Yeah. And um, but Netflix don't they don't they don't they just don't want to do that. They just don't want to have your film. They want to keep it for themselves. Do you know what I mean? Which you kind of understand the logic of it actually if you understand marketing in a funny kind of a way, right? I think. But, um. But from a directing point of view, from a filmmaker's point of view, what happens is, is I delivered a film in kind of mid-January, like final completion happened kind of by the end of January. And then you wait for a few weeks to find out when it's going out. Like you don't know what's going to happen to your film. And then you find out that it's not going to get pitch screened at a festival and it's going to go out in kind of April. And so, and then, and then, so you're like, okay, fine. And like, it's going to go out and kind of, April, but then like it's almost like it's almost been like silence. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, almost yeah, silence. Yeah. You know, so you kind of sat there, kind of going, "Oh my, oh my God!" You know, we did a few test screens, so we know, and we know that it's not. We know it's a good film, but you do a kind of test screen, so we know that like you know, how audiences react to it. But you're still kind of like you just don't know. And of course, there's a there's a press embargo. There's a day and day press embargo, so you don't. You're not really. You don't really know what the press is. Maybe. I would say I would say that's the one thing that we do miss because with, with the, the great joy of making the short films was always, you know, watching them with a festival crowd and seeing people react to them and so on. And that with this one, we're not going to have that. You know, the, for all the, the huge benefits of it being on Netflix, of all of all the streamers on Netflix, you know, they have the biggest reach, the biggest platform. Um, you know, the the sad thing I think is that we, we, we you know, we've been in test screenings and seeing people react to certain critical moments, one or two of which are in the trailer, mm. and they react with unanimity. You know, they, they react, they jump at the same time, they cry out at the same time. And, you know, it would have been nice to have had a bit more of that um, if it had gone into cinemas and so on. But then, you know, an indie horror film trying to find its way, meander its way through the cinema circuit, it's a lonely journey, generally speaking, isn't it? I mean, even if, even if there's a lot of buzz around something, it can usually doesn't really nine times out of 10 doesn't translate into lots of people actually seeing the thing, you know? Mm. So, um, cause the noise is one thing and the reality as, as the box office numbers show is quite another, but, um, so we, we won't have that kind of communal experience with this, which is a shame, but on the other hand, you know, 210 million people can watch it if they want to. Instantly no, no, it's, it's, a, it's a kind Good of, it's, it's a new normal, isn't it? In a way. So it's kind of like, yeah. it's, it's, it's unusual in terms of what your expectations might have been, but actually, it's becoming a normal, isn't it? In in the way that films are, you know, Richard Linklater film just appears on Netflix. You know, you're kind of like, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, from, yeah. From, from our point of view, I mean, we're, we're obviously proud of what we've made, but but also it kind of raises the question is, you know, like 
And it's, it, I sound a bit like a twat for saying this actually, but like, what does success look like when obviously what we've done, you know, we made an indie film, we sold it for profit to Netflix and it's going out to 220 million people and the trailer's at 2 million views and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you've made a successful film, but it's like, what does success actually look like? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it raises it raises that question from a filmmaker's point of view, you know? Like, how, like, how do we know if the film's successful? Like, what, well, it's not going to be a tree falling over in the forest, is it, that nobody hears? You will, there will be a reaction, but you're going to, I guess it's going to be, in a weird way, it's good, you know, in the way that, the way you tell the story of how the film came about with all the different avenues you went down before it became a film, in a way you're, you're going to receive the, the sort of feedback in a similar fashion. It won't all land at you in where you expect it. It will get I know, to- I know. And, and that's just, you know, like when you come through a certain, you know, it's, it's just, I don't think I prepared myself for that. I had no, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you know, you go through this, this huge battle to like this war to make a film and then you, you come into it and it's like you kind of like what 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 now and it's like even with tv there's a there's a build to tv do you know what i mean but mm. this is it's it's gonna it's gonna land and it's kind of it's exciting and scary at the same time but it's also like you know what do you believe about what you read when it comes out and stuff like that it's like I well look yeah i mean yeah i suppose you can't you can't you can only have your first film once can't you you can't do it a second time there's no which I'm quite, which I'm quite pleased about, actually. Like... <laughs> well, look, the one one thing I haven't mentioned, and just very quickly, we'll quickly because we've mentioned Ace, we've mentioned Lola, and they obviously are, the, you know, Lola is Kayla, the star, the star of the film, as it were, and Yola, Yola, sorry, pronounce- my own hand, my own handwriting, sorry, my mistake. Can you talk about maybe favourite moments with both Ace and her? Sort of um, did something f- with with what you were expecting, where it went beyond, and you were like, no, that's what we should do. You know, where can you can you can you pinpoint any moments in the shoot where they brought their characters to life beyond your expectations? Or- well, I think I, I think I talked to one about one earlier when when Asa was reacting with, this, with, with basically text on the screen, and he made that come alive in a way that, that um, <laughs> yeah, that, that I couldn't believe. And um, with Yoda, gosh, she's so brave. I think that's the thing that that struck me. You know, like she goes into that that water at the end of the film. She she. We had like a minute and a half of her underwater closing her throat with her mouth open and her eyes open. Do you know what I mean? She le- she learned to do that in like two days and no obviously- way. But obviously, there's divers and you know and she, yeah, she, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, like it's, it's those kind of moments where you realise that these people, you know, these people care about so much about what they do and getting it and getting it right to the pace that I mean I couldn't believe it like none of the crew could believe it I think we we left a whole I mean we were pushed we were pushed for time obviously the whole time on this film one of the things that we did was demand I mean you've seen the film it works at pace right that was always the intention oh no it goes along at hell of a lick yeah there's too many in my opinion there are too many kind of like horror features that are made for, for small budgets that just meander along because they've got no choice but to meander along because, because like the schedule and the budget has forced them to do that. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like really, and we, we wanted, you know, if you think that there were six big set pieces in there, we had a six week shoot, that's one a week plus everything else in between. Do you know what I mean? It was mm. like, it was, it was, it was pretty full on. And like her, Keeping that level of concentration 
and being in it, you know, she's basically in almost every single scene. She's the whole time was 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 taxing and hard. And she she came out of it the other end, you know what I mean? It's like it's a difficult, difficult, tough thing to do. And like the, yeah, the bravery of that, I'm, I'm quite astonished by. I mean, Ace of Ace of Butterfield, technically, I've worked with quite a few actors now, and technically he's incredible, like as an actor, his craft is impeccable. It's like yeah. It was when we when we cast him, we were because obviously as Toby said, it's an indie film and it was it was it was deficit financed and obviously as you will know Stuart from from doing this yourself deficit finance means there's all these dependencies like you need to get this type of actor you need to do this you need to do that and we were told in no uncertain terms that if you get somebody like Asa Butterfield then we'll green light you and then Asa Butterfield reads it he sees the deck then the deck is incredible and he watches the shorts and we get a call with Asa Butterfield and we're told you know you're going to, if you, you do this call, you and Toby with him, and if you get him, you're green lit. So there's high stakes on it. And again, I, I was believing over preparing. So I had prepared this pitch, you know, like expecting to have to kind of woo this guy and persuade him. And he pops up on this Zoom in January 2021, I think it was. Um, and there's all this gaming shit in his room, like, and he's got the gaming headphones and he's got the gaming chair and all that. And literally, it was like, oh, it's going to be fine. He's going to do it. And he was, he, he did it. You know, he was into it straight away. Uh, because he's a he's a gaming enthusiast himself, and he understood a lot of where it was coming from and what it was talking about, and he connected with the character and thought the character was fun. So, um, you know, it was getting him. I think was such a a big thing. And then and then Iola, just finding Iola was amazing. Iola, Iola, sorry, uh, that's Stuart's fault. And uh, and uh, and then and then Robert. You know, Robert was was we we sat and talked about the game. There should be a voice on the prize line. It should be somebody iconic. And we like did a wish list, and top of the wish list was Robert Robert England and, and Matt, our producer, who is 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 amazing at just saying, "Well, until you ask, you don't know." Um, put out the feelers, asked, and within I think a couple of weeks, you were you were directing him on a audio session. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and he was actually really influential uh, uh, with the film. Do, do you know? Because he he read the script, obviously said, "I don't do a lot of stuff that people send me, and I get sent an awful lot of stuff." And I think this is great. And he said, make sure, I mean, I hope you feel that there's some levity when you watch the film. That it's, we, we really didn't want to make a, a Billy horror movie. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And he was like, make sure there's some fun in it. Make sure that you have some fun with this because, you know, you can have fun with horror. Like, I'm pretty dark. Um, and Simon's quite, quite light. And that always kind of, Kind of well, it works really well, doesn't it? Because it kind of hits yeah. each other, and we find a thing. But but you know, whenever we were we were going like that, in terms of like how dark or how light it should be, I remembered what I remembered what what Robert said, and I think the balance of that hopefully comes across really well. I feel you know that that we're not just going doom, 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 doom. It's like you're a long you're a long way from Snowtown. Don't worry, I don't think <laughs> I don't think you're. <laughs> You're you're in that neck of the woods. I mean, it is, and it is. I must admit that is because that, because of, of the because of the the pace you go along. I think the 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 way I describe it is like you've you've made the um like the the thirty five minute album, so to speak. You've kind of you've you've gone. This is what we need. We don't need anything else. It's like there's no need to just because we can fill more space. We should fill space. It's like I get the feeling watching a lot of films that uh, that there's more could be taken out to make it a better film, but but because it's there. Maybe there's a f- affection towards something, or something costs a lot of money. They'll, 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 it'll be it'll be left in, but it won't be to the better of the film in the end. 
Yeah, and also you've got to trust your editors on that score as well. Like um, like my first editor, Tommy Bolding, he went off and made a film of his own called Hounded after the director's cut. And fortunately, I was lucky enough that Mark Pounds, who cut Censor and St. Ward, okay, okay. came on for the, for from the point when Netflix came on. So the guy's got studio experience because he did the ritual as well and stuff like that. But also he is, you know, his films aren't long. He was like it was like, let's cut this down. Like this, this is a ride. Let's make it, yeah, let's yeah, make yeah. it a ride. And I, and I think it is, I mean, sometimes in all honesty, I think that on a big screen, I think that it could be 30 seconds or longer. I think we could hold the beats a bit longer, but for the platform that it's going on, I think it works really well. Do you know what I mean? On a smaller, on a smaller screen, it, you know, you can cut quicker on a smaller screen. So, you know, you, you need to hold it a little bit longer on a, on a, on a larger screen, which is kind of, interesting in itself but but this is again this is a thing that filmmakers are going to have to start start to decide you know if you make an indie movie now like really you really do have to think about where you want it to go like because if you because because the way that first acts are structured for for streamers the form is changing do you know what i mean they want people to stay watching their movies no matter what unless they buy a movie out outright they're going to play with your first act to, to get it as tight as possible because they want no to no no the expression the expression give it 20 minutes doesn't exist doesn't exist in, a, in some vacuum does it no people, people are doing that sadly are doing that now it's really frightening it's uh no and uh, well it's kind of frightening but also but also you've got to take this stuff and look at it as an opportunity right so you kind of yeah. say okay okay so how can i how can i write a film where i make where i make an impact in there and in, in the first 20 minutes in the first act and still not Still not destroy my story or destroy what I'm trying. <laughs> well, look, Toby. I'm sh- there is there is there's, we. I feel we've barely touched the surface, and yet we've talked for over an hour together. And I'm very grateful for your patience, giving me that much time. You two. Um, it just gives me to say congratulations on thank you die, and thank you very much for giving me time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 